talking on it And I'm probably drinking tea Shooting the breeze in the hope that you care Who could it be? Scalieve it or not, it's just me What's up, Scalievers? Non-Scalievers and soon to be I'm trying to do a Mark Maron thing that he does at the top of his podcast, but I don't think it's working for me. He's, you know, he's legit. He's American and he swears. Hello, Scalievers, non-Scalievers, and soon-to-be Scalievers, I hope. And thank you for downloading the podcast, Matt Skellington's Scalieve It or Not. Just to set the scene, I've got my head stuck in a cupboard. Not literally. I'm, I'm purposely putting my head in a cupboard to record this um, intro to the podcast because I believe it might give me better sound quality. I'm just being honest with you. I hope you enjoy the podcast. This is the first one that I recorded, but I currently have three under my belt. And uh, I just want to say, by the fourth, I get a new microphone involved. You know, I up the quality. These three are absolutely fine to listen to, uh, but the the quality will improve by the fourth one. So uh, basically, stay tuned and listen to them all. What's this podcast all about? I hear you scream at the top of your voices. Uh, well, I can try and tell you. It's about me chatting to creative people and finding out what makes them tick. And I want to delve into the uh, the more frustrating times they may have had during, you know, if you dedicate your career to something creative, it can be a bit of a struggle at times. So I'd like to find out about that. But most of all, I just hope to have a decent chat with some decent people and hope it's interesting for a listener to listen to. Anyway, that's enough of that. I'm just trying to kind of fill time, really, because I don't have any advertisers yet, so I can't um, sell you me undies yet. But I, I really hope they contact me. This week's guest is the wonderful Ben Target. He's a friend of mine, and he's um, he's very good at what he does as a comic performer. In the podcast, we talk about the gold mine, and just to give you a bit of context, that's basically where we met. It was a it was a bar that we both worked in, and you you got to go to the gold mine and get get the gold. That's how it became known between us, because we're losers. Let's get on with the show. This is Ben Target. Have you got any mad plans? For Crimbo? Yeah. I don't know. Do you think you'll end up back at the gold mine? Probably. Yeah. That's where we met, the gold mine, for anyone listening. Ah, oh, of course, yeah. So I met Ben maybe two... Two years ago. I just got back from a tour in Australia, so 2015 winter which was the year that they took an unprecedented amount behind the bar. It was like the busiest, busiest time they've ever had. Yes. And we met on Keg Crew <laughs> one night and it was pissing it down. And we had to do like three hours of shifting kegs around in the oh, rain. that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you were wearing one of your, your trademark flat caps. And, and you were wearing a, a red bobble hat, yeah. which I think was pretty tra- trademark for you. It's become... Point. I've seen some press shots with you in a similar... It's the same one. ...similar hat. <laughs> and I recognised your face and I, cu- I couldn't remember why. And Because we, we weren't initially talking that much. We were... Um, I was more watching at you, you from a distance. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you, you were working very hard. I remember uh, you filling a fridge and I was, like, looking down or across it because I, I think I was doing another fridge. <laughs> like, some kind of weird... A homoerotic 80s rom-com. Yeah. I saw you across the bar. It's like that moment in Predator where they meet just before the mission and they just sort of (laughs) shake hands and have a weird kind of, show the gun. What's the matter? Got you pushing too many pencils down a silly hole. (laughs) Yeah, it was like that, except Ben was looking at me going, I was looking at you thinking, I recognise your face, I don't know why. And then I eventually got the balls to just say it to you, I think, didn't you? I remember your. I remember thinking, "Oh, I shouldn't have brought this up." I was I was very cagey about performing comedy because I don't know. In these sorts of jobs that we work to make this happen, mm. you meet people who can be quite I don't know prejudiced in a way. They're a bit like, "Well, I don't really want you on my team if you're." I don't know. You mean like the rest of the staff? Or just the company itself? Oh, not, not, at, not at this place that we work. I'm just saying, like, in part-time jobs I've had, especially in offices, when people have discovered I'm a performer, mm. there's been a palpable shift in uh, the atmosphere. And sometimes, not in a good way, people have, I don't know, f- felt that that somehow 
undermines my ability to also function as a day-to-day human. <laughs> yeah. I suppose that's quite interesting, actually, as well, because especially if it's a preconception of being involved in comedy as well, it's like, well, who is this guy? Yeah. If he's a joker on the, on the stage, he's a yeah. joker at we're, this place. We're not all Chris Farley. We're not, uh, <laughs> we're not speedballing every five minutes. Well, speak for yourself. Uh, <laughs> one of the things I probably said to you when first meeting you, or at least getting to know you a bit, um, I felt like there's a bit of an Andy Corton vibe about you, which I meant as a compliment as well. Oh, it's a huge compliment to me. I believe me. you took it he's, as well. Um, he's one of my... He's, a, he's an influence that I re- repeatedly return to. Yeah. Just... I remember reading um, Steve Martin's autobiography, uh, Born Standing Up, and thinking before I'd read it, and the same with Andy Kaufman, that what I was doing was interesting and new territory and then once I'd seen a lot of these 70 perform- 70s performers I realised that they'd done everything mm. that our generation thought was crisp and fresh Yeah, um, and I felt really broken hearted at the time but now I realise that whether you like it or not you eventually fall into a tradition, you fall into a lineage and you've got to um, I don't know, honour Honor the ancestry, but also push it forwards and then hand it down to someone. It's like a it's like a circus act in a way. Yeah, that is, that's a nice thought as well. Like when I I because eventually we clocked that we'd done a gig together in about 2011, around the time that we'd all sort of broken onto the comedy scene and got a bit of heat. People mm. were talking about our work. We had quite a, an interesting aesthetic. And I still think when I look at your work that part of your ancestry is things like uh, League of Gentlemen and yeah. maybe The Mighty Boosh, where things are a little bit uh, Dark pecu- peculiar. Peculiar, peculiar yeah. 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 I suppose, actually, League of Gentlemen specifically as well, like it genuinely, and I always, I was making little videos and, and stuff like that, but a show like that came along and, and completely changed my career path, I think, in terms of. It was a case of going, oh, well, I, ju- I want to do that. Yeah. And, it, and absolutely, like, it's been a template for loads of our stuff, especially this thing that we're doing at the moment. But it's about, like you say, making it your own, isn't it? It's, yeah. It's, uh, I was talking to Ryan, actually, last night about magic. We were doing a check. We were just talking about magic, and <laughs> he was showing this magic trick, and we were... And it, and we were talking about the, like, the basics of magic. We don't know lots about magic. Ryan knows <laughs> more than I do. But it's quite interesting because it's about every performer will put their own spin on a trick that literally the phrase, oldest trick in the book. Yeah. Is, uh, you can take one trick that's very simple and make it your own somehow. But you use the knowledge that's come before you. And I think that's quite a good analogy. Yeah. Maybe of what you're saying there with Steve O. Martin, etc. Yeah, and Kaufman, well, I think it's, it's more difficult to take uh, Kaufman uh, because Kaufman, it seems like he made his life into the, into the work. He yeah. never knew what he was pulling or whether anything was true or false. Like traveling around as Tony Clifton, uh, having Tony Clifton visit him on set in taxi, um, all that stuff, you know, taking the audience for ice cream, just... Have you read the book that Steve Azusi wrote? The Wrong Gong! Yeah, this one's pretty deserved of The Wrong Gong. Um, Steve Azusi, did I say? Azusu? I mean, I was I talking about the life aquatic guy? That's not what I meant. I was talking about Bob Zamuda, lifelong friend of Andy Kaufman, who wrote the book... Andy Kaufman revealed Best Friend Tells All. If you're a fan of comedy, I highly recommend you read the book. Back to the interview. It's, yeah, it's bananas. It's amazing, but it's, it took me ages to get through because yeah. if I remember, it's written kind of in the style of a Kaufman episode <clears> on TV. Yeah, I suppose it... it I, hope, I hope it's all true. <laughs> okay, so for anyone that has maybe not seen you mm. perform... There's so many words that could describe Ben Tajay, but is there any that just irritate you a little bit? You know, because there's obviously the classics. Oh, he's surreal. He's this. He's that. 
does that annoy you because you're just you just want to do what you want to do or I guess it annoyed me when I started that people were, were prescribing their idea of what I was as as a young act because I felt like I hadn't said anything it's like telling a baby what it's going to be when it grows up it felt a little bit um oppressive but sometimes criticism has helped me it's helped me understand what I'm trying to say because sometimes people see it before you see it because you're living it as you're making mm. something um the one that I still the word that I still feel a little bit cringy inside is odd <laughs> oh, okay but that's also maybe my go-to word because I suppose I, f I find it upsetting deep down because at school people would say I was odd and I had a very itinerant lifestyle growing up with my parents moving a lot so I was always trying to fit in and always trying to uh, and always you know I guess like everyone having some struggles with that and people would always say you're odd but not not like uh, malign odd benign odd mm. like like uh, I don't know like Tom Green's character in Road Trip. Like he's part of the gang, but he's sort of slightly on the outside. And I suppose when people started saying that about my work early on, I felt a bit like the past was catching up with me. Like comedy for me was a place where I could go and just be me and be accepted yeah. on stage as me, as long as I was making people laugh. Or, um, But I suppose in a way I've come to terms with it. And I've started kind of to made it your own. yeah, I've started to own it and mm. discover that uh, being odd, it's incredibly powerful. You know, you can stand alongside your peers, but you can also um, you can also be singled out by the audience. They're they're a little bit more taken with you. Yeah, you know, I can't imagine I'll end up on Mock the Week anytime too soon. But <laughs> you know, some of my friends are on it, and and when we started out together, they would always say stuff in the dressing room like, "Oh, I wish I could be like you and be this colorful stage presence with interesting visuals and uh, a lot of physicality and sort of a very dynamic um, uh, p performer." and and yet, at the same time, I'd look at them and be like, I wish I could just go on stage in a plaid t-shirt. Not a plaid t-shirt. That would be outrageous. Uh, <laughs> Although, I have thought it would be amazing. Yeah, jacket. Yeah, like a plaid shirt, you know? Like a lot of stand-ups who yeah. are my contemporaries wear plaid shirts. I guess it's like a very sort of like grounding, almost uniform for men and, and women, uh, all genders in their 30s. I guess what I'm saying is like sometimes I envy those guys because they just go on with nothing and they just say... If they say uh, they talk about their life and they they have a room in laughter. That's that's to me incredible. But and do you think if you do you think you're you're capable of being able to do that? And and would you but would you feel like you're almost lying to yourself if you tried doing that kind of stuff? I think I would be lying to myself at this stage. I'm not going to lie. Like I I have spent a lot of time trying to learn how to tell stories on stage and just say jokes uh, but I do struggle mm. I really struggle um, I just think innately I'm able to write visual jokes I'm able to uh, think of set pieces that are that might have costumes or sets involved I don't know why that is. I, I've been trying to mine that recently. Is it, can we escape our early influences? I don't know. I don't feel like I can anymore. Like growing up, I watched a lot of Looney Tunes, a lot of uh, Leslie Nielsen spoofs, a lot of Mel Brooks. I watched, uh, you know, even stuff- Nick, Nicky Gunn and- Yeah, but even stuff like when we were kids, like, um, the Jim Henson coming back through like the Dark Crystal or the Robin Williams stuff like Hook and Spielberg uh, things with like E.T. all that stuff I, th I feel like is a lot more I don't know somehow I feel like it's it's in my work and I can't escape it whereas if I had grown up somewhere else watching other stuff 
like uh, some of my contemporaries grew up watching Morecambe and Wise or a lot of Monty Python or a lot of uh, acerbic 90s stand-up and their stuff is is similar mm. in a way but I can't escape this kind of wackiness from all that stuff I watched early on and all the stuff my parents introduced me to like the, the clowns uh, Chaplin and Keaton and that's in me you know and uh Interesting you bring that up because I was gonna I was gonna ask is that uh, another way I think you've been described quite a lot as a a clown type performance because if people say to me oh Tarjay what's his what's he like and mm. I go I usually say well it's more of for me and this is yeah, yeah, yeah. I interpret it's a it's a performance and it's a very good performance and it's stems like a, it's a cl- a clownish a form of clownery do you know yeah. what I mean. I think it is. I mean, well, it depends what you're talking about. I think, you know, the stuff that you know me from is my uh, stage act, which I do and developed on the stand-up circuit. And that I do think of as an act. It is like a circus act. It's like uh, Steve Martin had that act. Jerry Seinfeld Seinfeld has an act. Whereas George Carlin and Louis C.K. and Sarah Silverman, for example, um, to me are more stand-ups. They address what's happening in their life and they make a show about that and then they live that show for say one or two years and then they discard it and they process what's happening to them in that time whereas uh you know those guys i just mentioned seinfeld and um steve martin and some other guys as well you know like tape face they develop uh material over time which they play like a record at each concert and I do think that my on stage acts like that you know I've written say over the years uh, 20 to 30 minutes that I can do at clubs and that's interchangeable on the night but it doesn't digress too much whereas other work I do like my hour shows which I take on tour are much more about me processing my life ongoing so, so yeah, I guess it is rooted in clown. Um, I didn't study clown like some of my contemporaries. There has been a sort of um, like an explosion of people studying clown and going back to clown. But I also see clown in so many things. I think many people, like Coogan, to me, is a clown on stage. Like that character, Alan Partridge, mm. is a clown. Uh, uh, Mr. Bean is a clown. Yes. Um, Colonel Mannering is a clown. Like, there are so many clowns in uh, famous comedies, but I think people have, audiences have quite a specific understanding of what clown is. Mm. Like, it might be closer to the character in It, or, you yeah. know, the, the, the circus that came through your town when you were five years old. But clown is... is I don't know what clown is. It's a number of things, but to I me, it's, it's quite vague, isn't it? The, the word clown, yeah. because it could mean so much. But it's like a a sort of tragicomic character that mm. is rooted in um, being completely vulnerable, and the audience being able to to connect with that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe my understanding of it. I think I have a slight understanding of it. Yeah, but well, people you... often describe <laughs> me as a clown because I came. Th- I. When I got some traction on the scene here in the UK, there were a few other people getting traction, like Dr. Brown, who's a Californian clown, Tapeface, who's a New Zealand visual comic, and there was an article that talked about us as being a new uh, birth of clown. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I think that's been attached to me a lot, and I don't mind it. No. At all. You know, people like to genreify stuff. I suppose it makes it easier to, well, especially easier to write reviews. Yeah. Yeah, well, definitely. And to sell things to audiences as well. I mean, I think it, it's tricky because I, I like my audiences to come and watch a show and think for themselves and make up their own mind about stuff. I like being afforded that opportunity when I go see a film or something to come out and not be told that I have to think of it with regards to a genre or something. It's just a standalone experience. But I understand why we get genreified. 
you just come back from Edinburgh. That's right. And you were there for a month. Yeah. Is that right? With your shirt, Orange Aid. That's it. Um, it seems to have gone down pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I was delighted with the response. Uh, <laughs> about a year ago, I didn't think I'd really get back up on stage, certainly in Edinburgh. Um, so what was the... We briefly talked about this before. Um, was it a bit of doubt in yourself, or you kind of you, had you fallen out with the the, the trade? So yeah, I think I think a number of things happened. I'm still processing it, but I had I came to England to study medicine, and I went to the Fringe, saw so many shows, and thought, "This I don't know how to do this, but this is what I want to do." And I came to London in 2009, worked very steadily. Um, gigging up and down the country, built a show and got some traction at the Fringe nominations, awards. And in 2013, um, everything changed for me. I, there were a lot of changes in my personal life and I began doubting everything and I became very anxious about stuff. And I, um, for the first time in my life, addressed... Uh, address, try to address the causes of all this anxiety, um, and got help and effectively recalibrated my life so that comedy wasn't the, uh, the reason I was living. Yeah. Um, and I think I slowly healed and for a long time I didn't feel like I would put myself in the position where... I was as obsessively dedicated to making work, but at the same time I was feeling sad because I felt like that's what it sometimes takes. It takes that drive to make something that is honest and pure and as good as you can make it. Um, it's that catch-22 yeah, situation. It's a balance. It's, it's, I think it takes a great deal of skill to get right. I don't know many people who do get it right. Mm. I know people who get it right at times, but I don't know many comedians who can consistently stay on the road, consistently produce strong shows, and be in a healthy relationship. <laughs> I don't know that with many... themselves as well as with Yeah, people, I don't yeah. know that many people who aspire to make comedy, who have a steady job and a steady home life, who produce work that's captivating it's tough it's a tough call you mm. know i don't know what the mileage is how long we can keep doing this but i definitely have learned that i've got to honor my gut feelings and my gut feeling for two or three years between 2013 and really 2016 was i'm in a process of uh reforging myself I, I need to learn about mental health, I need to learn about how to manage finances, I need to learn about whether I want to be in a long-term relationship, all the things that... Uh, Your regular dude. Yeah, I get, uh, yeah. Perceive that they can deal with. Yeah, and I think that has a, has a huge effect on, it had an effect on my work. My work became um, openly experimental. Um, I didn't categorize it as comedy. Um, I tried a lot of stuff out that failed. Uh, I think my reputation changed slightly. Um, certain people, you know, I had to let go of certain relationships. I couldn't work in certain relationships anymore. I found other relationships, but very slowly I managed to make this new show, Orange Aid, which was a, which I think is a, is a, a reflection on the past few years. Uh, that is contextualized in events that happened in my childhood that may have led to this period of turbulence and is also a visual transformation of a childlike adult into a clown who is a sad adult. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so just to be able to get back on stage and to do, do to work consistently and professionally on something for a month is a success for me in its own right. But to have people come every day and see the show and so much positive 
um, comments and reactions around it and to um, have some really delightful critical responses as well is is you know it's a step beyond that that's a delight i i'm i'm i feel i felt completely um i felt very loved so is and is that kind of is it weird because of everything what orange aid was all kind of about and what it then what then you got out of it i've i did not manage to see the show i've heard tings about it and yeah. i know people that have gone and seen it and have kind of described stuff about it to me and i know it, it covers certain uh, areas like suicide and yeah, stuff yeah, like yeah. this, which obviously is a was it like a therapeutic type? Oh yeah, totally. This show was one hundred percent therapeutic. Mm. I think it was quite a selfish show. Um, it was art as therapy. Um, I don't think it's that, that clear to the audience. I alluded to things as opposed to stated them. That was a choice. But also, I discovered as I was working on the the, the themes that I didn't. I wasn't skilled enough to guide the audience respectively through them and leave them in a good place, which I feel you, you have the responsibility as an entertainer partly to do, um, or at least partly to, well, to completely uh, explain or, or at least just to be clear about why you're doing something. Um, I think the show is about male fragility, but it's also about recovery and um, the connections that siblings have that, like most relationships, change over time. But my brother and I, my brother Hugo and I, have a very strong bond. And we fought a lot as kids, but we always had each other's backs. It was like we had permission to punch each other, but if anyone else threw a punch, they were going to get punched <laughs> yeah. by two people. You yeah. know? And he's become a very responsible... Um, compassionate uh, character and that was how people perceived me as a child and they perceived him as the black sheep this kind of rogue is he your older brother? he's oh. younger than me he's younger than you okay but as adults you know I live quite um, a peculiar lifestyle and he's quite grounded and yet we both have had experiences with uh suicidal thoughts and depression and um, so this show was built out of a conversation him and I recorded in February of this year over two hours where we spoke openly about um, I guess coming out of the closet to ourselves about harboring all this thought and being ashamed to show it to anyone in our family and then when we did show it to people in our family no one around us really had the skills to unpack it. So you, you mean physically showing this recording? No, I mean just the stories that went into this recording, you know, the times that okay. he felt isolated and how he dealt with that growing up and likewise. And so as soon as we, I just felt like I had to talk to him about this stuff and we wanted to record it because... Um, we felt there was some worth in having a record of this conversation. Yeah. And that comes down to one thing. We are the first people in our family, all generations, to have openly gone to therapy, to have been open with the rest of the family about not feeling good, and um, to have, to a certain extent, been iced out a little bit, just because of the culture yeah. surrounding that in our family. Um, an emotional experience then, I imagine. Yeah, it has, it's been a hugely emotional ride um, and a very hard one that has seen a lot of loss and a lot of relationships change. But I felt Hugo and I have both made this decision that whatever happens, we have the responsibility to educate the next generation how to look after yourself, how to take responsibility for your mental and physical welfare. Something that I don't feel was taught to me and something I definitely feel the responsibility to learn as much about now mm. so I can teach people who, who are in the next generation if stuff happens for them, you know. Yeah. I want, I want our families to become a safe space for everyone to um, reach out and get help.
and it starts with us. And so that's why we recorded this conversation. Then I asked him permission once I'd listened back to it, whether I could help, whether I could use parts of it as a basis for the show. And so my brother's voice is in the show, but it only comes into the show to indicate uh, turning points and themes because the show itself is on the outset a sort of 70s game show. I play a lot of games with the audience, they're really silly. I tell stories of stupid shit that happened in our childhood, you yeah. know, the sort of like the first time you go shoplifting or you know, the, the sort of dumbass stuff you do that you partly regret and partly think that's oh, a good story. I was a bit of a rogue, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so my brother's voice checks in with us as we go on this journey um, of me sort of pinpointing moments of growing up and playing these dumbass games as to uh, sort of what it might mean. And I, I don't really conclude, I don't really say, well, this is a show about, uh, you know, recovering from suicidal thoughts and living day to day with, you know, the responsibility of taking care of yourself. Wow, there's a guy shouting outside and it sounds this, good. Just at the right time as well. Just at the right time. I feel like a, we've dived in pretty deep here. No, no, I enjoy the chat. I've just got to say this is the weirdest road. <laughs> uh, every time I put my head out, there's always something going on, like a naked old woman at the bus stop or <laughs> that screaming there was... Uh, from outside, it wasn't something falling out of Ben's mind. <laughs> <laughs> Although I wish it was. <laughs> <laughs> we can actually hear that. Yeah. Well, so, so you, it's his voice, and it's from that conversation that, yeah, yeah, that you yeah. actually had. Okay. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it was so many firsts for me in this show, and I purposefully put myself in the position where to climb out of this period of creative experimentation, which I, I also felt was a lull. Um, I felt like I had to recommit to making work and part of that was by terrifying myself by going, right, you've never told a story on stage, you've got to try and do that. Right, you've never been uh, advertently and openly honest about your life's experiences. I want you to try and do some of that. But then there were also other things I wanted to do. I didn't want to make a show that was um, above above everything else just about seeking attention mm. because that felt quite um, <laughs> duplicitous so um, you know I've seen work in the past where somebody's talked about a traumatic period of their life and I've come out of the show feeling that it's less about um, learning from that and more about them just wanting a bit of love mm. and not necessarily for having gone through that experience but just in general wanting a bit of love and I felt like that wasn't the show I wanted to make. And so I, I, um, I don't ask for it from the audience. Um, yeah, it was a huge show for me. It, I think it's going to be one that audiences who come back to me might not remember because it's not as bold or um, visceral as some of my earlier work. But I do think it's a huge turning point and it's something that I will probably look back at in years to come and go, that was the milestone for me when I started to mature as an artist, where I started to challenge myself and, and crucially make shows that I want to make rather than shows that are being demanded of me. Yeah. You know? And that, like, that's as important for you as any kind of award or, do you know, like in <laughs> yeah. terms of for you personally moving forward. Yeah. And I see it in your guys' work as well. Like you had a similar trajectory where you came out of, you came out running into the industry with quite a strong aesthetic um, as a real unit and then you got some opportunities and some opportunities didn't come your way which is often the journey of a young artist and then you're, you feel like you're in limbo for a long time and I think the point at which things begin to change and take on stronger meaning is when you do find that uh, that fuel, that purpose of right, I'm here to make the thing that I want to make and I'm going to get it done. And I've seen you guys in the past year like gear up to making this pilot that you're working on and you're just remaining very focused and you're 
keeping it in-house and I think it's going to be so much stronger because of that. Oh, how, I mean, how do you feel about it? Yeah, um, I think so, like you said, initially when you have these kind of opportunities and you're always trying to do things for the man, so mm. to speak. Like the man. Nearly, the man, nearly getting that BBC pilot or at least pitching or at least being told by the head of comedy that you know we were great and and then you soon realize that you just can't expect anything from anyone because you're going to set yourself up for disappointment so absolutely like taking control of his own show and, and not fear, you know doing whatever we want and, and doing this thing yesterday um for a company that had a client on set and and to be fair to them you know it was that they were they were fine but having to do things in a specific way and to tailor what they want, it just made me think, God, I can't wait until we make Don't Say Brother. Yeah. Because we can do whatever the fuck we want. <laughs> like, and that might make it shit. <laughs> <laughs> but I think uh, it really it excited me, seeing the boys uh, just yesterday, how they worked, James as director and uh, John performing. It, did, it got me very excited. Um, yeah. And, and and Ben here, he's going to show his face in detail, aren't you? I can't wait. As I love it. Uh, no, it's going to be great. It's um, I, I, I've got to tell you, I watched a video. So 2012, you were nominated for Best Newcomer. Yeah, the Edinburgh Festival. The, the Edinburgh Festival. I just want to pick you up about something because I thought it was... I thought it was just incredibly cool... <laughs> <laughs> what you did um, I want to let you just tell the story here but I've, uh, I've there's a stage obviously there's the best newcomers that year it was like Joe Lysa uh, I've got a list of the uh, David Trent you know the uh, guys David Trent Sam Fletcher and Daniel Simonson Daniel Simonson yeah. who won it in the yeah. end which, yeah uh, they're all great I love all their work yeah yeah um, they're all on stage so they can take photographs but you <laughs> I sat down and you have your team of guys in the um, white uh, what's the, what's the white boiler suits. White boiler yeah, during, suits. during my show, I have I, I hosted a in the middle of the show, I hosted a beach ball game with the audience, in which I had a team of six sort of goons who wore white boiler suits, mm. and uh, in the, the 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 photograph of all the nominees, which goes up on the official Edinburgh Awards website. <laughs> Uh, you know, my peers had their themselves goofing around, but I, I just sat st stoic in character, surrounded by my lush team of beach ball players. But I, I, there's some real to me. That's that's a real class and a real to the to the very end. I got told off for that. <laughs> I mean, that makes it even better, doesn't it? Like, they, they told off. Whilst people. whilst the press were snapping away, um, the some some of the people behind. The event were anxious and upset that I was ruining the prestige of the occasion, and I felt like this is—you've nominated my show. Yeah. This is these are the people in my show, and I feel like they should be involved in this and have as much credit. But also, I felt like it was a strong flavour that that picture needed. I think it was an excellent move, and also I think it says a lot about your character. Um, showing you're not you're you're not one. I would say personally, after knowing you for a little bit, you're not great at taking compliments. <laughs> and if you are if you are given a compliment, you're quick to turn it round on that person and and, and compliment them. But it shows a, a great bit about your character to get the guys who were in your show up on stage because you felt you know you're it's a very I don't think kind is the right word, but you're you're very earnest and and maybe that's not the right word either. There's just something about it, I think, how, how think good of you to say, well, this is something we're all celebrating together, and I couldn't have done it without these guys, and these, yeah. these deserve the credit as well. You guys, you, got, you uh, seldom differ, your sketch troupe, you ended up being in the filmed version of that show, which was awesome. So cool <laughs> that you guys right, came. Because yes. instead of the beach ball game, we had, uh, spoiler alert, for anyone wishing to watch the show. You can watch this on Next Up Comedy, I think. Yeah, Next Up Comedy. Available at... Uh, really great platform who are like, really, the Fringe Festival online. They, yeah. They go out and film the lesser-known acts who are just as strong as you might find on telly but might not get a DVD deal straight away. 
uh, yeah, and instead of the beach ball game, you guys kind of came on and did did, did, a, uh, did, just, a, did uh, a show. Twisted Badger, what we call yeah. it. Uh, just As a, a fake horrible. sketch group, sort of a <laughs> horrible a collection of cliches from student theatre. Bless you, student theatre. You have provided many hours <laughs> of entertainment. Um, it, yeah, was, it was, it was great. Yes, but to be honest, I just think that shows shows up more than the people that you see performing the show. You know, behind every stand-up show, there's probably a promoter or a friend who's sat down and gone through the script, or a director producers who've backed you around the country you know there are people behind your work and there is this image of the artist as god that they're responsible for every decision every choice everything that you see before you but an artist is to me somebody or peoples who um try to express their experiences of the human condition as clearly as possible and so you're 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 like a filter you're a you're like a a barrier of osmosis of mm. this experience of life just flowing a through semi, you. A semi-permeable membrane. Yes. Mm. Someone did GCSE biology. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I do think, you, I think it is healthy to be grateful for the people around you who are involved. And I think it's important where possible to, to shout them out, to get behind and, them as much as they got behind you, you know? Yeah. And in that... Um, particular video sequence of everyone receiving their nominations everyone seemed, uh, got interviewed but you didn't appear in the interview was that uh, by choice or by that, that was by choice I decided that year that I wasn't going to do any press whatsoever and my posters were just my pink face the show was called Discover Bentage so I wanted there to be in every facet around the show uh, the character of that show leaking through. And I felt like at the end of the show, I disappear from the audience. And I felt like if that character's on the run, he wouldn't do interviews. He wouldn't yeah. hype his own show. I mean, it's like completely, complete sort of marketing suicide, but somehow it worked for that show because mm. people bought into the experience. And the experience began from the moment that they saw that poster, which just had a pink face and no information on it. And slowly, people could get more information on each flyer. You've got a mighty was... beard on that picture as well. Yeah, right? mighty beard. I have beard. one in my room there. <laughs> you gave me one of your cards quite early on. That was a sweet gesture. Yeah. And I said, where's all the details? <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't work for everything. But I do, yeah, I don't know. I, that's another core belief I have about making work is that um, the character of the work you're making... Uh, the audience get to interact with it often before they see you as a mm. person. And so you, you have the opportunity to sort of leave them a trail of interesting stuff in the, in the way that you guys, when you did your Kickstarter, you kind of sent out those great lead in videos, which had their own story arc. Yeah. That's like a real gift. And I do think that audiences, they like to be treated. They like to buy into those worlds that we mm. make and they like it when, like J.K. Rowling's Pottermore, you know, that you can read beyond the books. People like to come to these worlds that we make, and it's good when we, and and we take care of them. It's yeah. good when we take care of them. I suppose that's, for me, that reminded me of you. Me? Reminded me of you? I reminded you of me. You reminded, reminding me of you. For some reason, reminded me of you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when I said you reminded me of uh, Andy Kaufman, I think part of it was that there's, it's not just, oh, I'm doing an hour on stage and then I'll come and meet you after and we'll have some drinks and we'll talk about the show and we'll go out and get a kebab. For me... But I would love to do all that. And, and we will. <laughs> uh, but I think a lot of the times, like you were saying about your, that particular show that you were nominated for Best Newcomer, this idea that it, it's all a show, you know, mm. and the show doesn't stop after that hour's finished. You seem to ooze that or at least I don't know do you think that's very intentional you know exactly what you're doing or is that more of a love for art do you see it more as an art piece and as a process it, it was with that show it was very intentional and I've always wanted to be an artist since I was a kid 
I remember the moment I decided I wanted to be an artist. My, it was raining outside, my parents got some scrap paper, gave me some crayons and were like, draw. And I was drawing on the stairs. And I remember I was trying my right hand and my left hand to see which one I preferred drawing with. Chose my left hand. But what age was this again? Sorry? Four. Four years old in Holland. And you were aware I distinctly remember just thinking, I'm comp just being so happy and thinking, I want to do this forever. I just want to make stuff. I want to draw. I want to make. And I discovered later on that I was an artist. But, you know, in the education system we grew up with, artists were generally, you know, disregarded. Oh, occasionally they make a fancy picture which might make you happy on a bad day. But uh, you can't become an artist. It's not a paid job. It's, it's for people who, who dick around, who aren't smart. And I just feel like it was completely maligned and, uh, m well, mistreated and misrepresented. And as I've grown up, I've discovered that artists are remarkable humans, real, really interesting thinkers with many varieties of intelligence. And I think also um, there's often not a line or not a clear line between their life outside of the art piece and the art piece itself. I feel mm. like the two are some often, and definitely in my life, um, they're sort of intricately linked. It's a weave. And uh, I try to, now with my work, maybe not the middle years between Discover and Orange Ada shows, but with Discover and Orange Ada, try to make the sh make the show beyond the show. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, live the art and let the art live me. I think that's a very beautiful way of looking at it as well. Speaking of Orange Aid, your brother did... Is it, is it the same brother with, that you have a chat with? Yeah, um, Hugo did all the artwork yeah. for Orange Aid and it's absolutely gorgeous. We were inspired by... We didn't grow up with video games, but we used to go around to mates' houses and watch, and just, uh, I love video games. Yeah. Um, I, I still don't have a console or play them at all, but I love going around to certain people's houses and just being part of the story, the, the culture. And we were just chatting about Street Fighter and reflecting on that artwork and how much we loved that. And... I wanted to make artwork that had a similar kind of uh, vibe and Hugo took, you know, the games and the show and uh, we found some beautiful artwork by, I think it's us two who make the game Monument Valley, just a beautiful game. And we wanted, yeah, we wanted to make something that had a similar kind of playful, cal but calming kind of sensibility and so Hugo went away and made that and it's incredible I love it and it got picked up by the Scotland which mm. is one of the big newspapers Amazing. that covers the fringe and it became their centre spread at the end of the festival and we I mean we're completely taken aback and, and the front page was the photo of Yes. The orange jade. Did he do the, all the, did your bro do the photography? A guy, a Brighton-based photographer called Ed Moore did all the photography. He also does James A. a. Caster's photography. And he, the reason I chose him is because he often works with uh, block colour backgrounds. Yeah. And his photos are, have got quite like pristine, clear quality to them. I thought they were stunning, by the way. Yeah. Like a really, really striking image. And yes, it's great that you got on, on the front of Scotsman. I just, I, well, I just, I remember when I was walking around the Edinburgh Festival, there were so many missed opportunities in terms of people. If you're handing out flyers, it's essentially a record sleeve, and if you go to like, if you look at record sleeves, there are so many amazing pieces of commercial mm -hmm. art, and I think as Brian Ferry, to paraphrase him, said how amazing it was when they made that first Roxy Music album that he basically got the opportunity to have his artwork in hundreds of shop fronts around the country. And I feel the same about... When you take a show to the Fringe, it's an album. Yeah. It's an album, often a year's journey. And, you know, you want to you wanna make a piece of artwork that represents the show, but also something that you want in your record collection.
or you could have a on the wall yeah as a poster yeah i think have you have you got one yet in a big frame <laughs> the one where you're holding uh lots and lots of orange balloons covering again covering your face which is quite the opposite yeah. of discovery yes no and this one um the you know one of the themes that i was trying to work with is sort of in a way how important how integral a performer is to uh, an audience being entertained and the audience in the show gets to play all these games so they're in a way entertaining themselves mm. and so on the posters I am hidden by a singular balloon that's in front of my face or many balloons that's in front of my face and my producer at this time said this is madness <laughs> you know the whole point of putting yourself on a poster is so that people clock in with the brand and remember that you're about and I was just like I mean Do you it's a comedy me? show this is <laughs> take the piss out of that you know yeah let's let's usurp it let's also be honest about what the show is you know a guy trying to come to terms with who he who he is but also hiding a little bit I think it's way more interesting as well that it grabs your attention more the fact that because like you say with Edinburgh it's kind of like an album and but there's thousands of musicians there that are trying to sell albums yeah I don't want to see the usual look at my wacky face yeah <laughs> uh, which is probably something I'd do um, I probably wouldn't now thinking about it I'd have blue balloons that would put in <laughs> you guys have got way too strong an aesthetic to not to not use opportunities to make art to do something interesting yeah but yeah, I mean, you know, if equally, you know, if it's a stand-up who's just in a black shirt and a microphone, I don't have a problem with that. No, either. that's being honest. That's them being honest about what they are. I just feel like and what the show is. I, I just get excited about the opportunity to make something that I'd want to put on a wall. But to come back to your question, I don't have any posters of myself on the wall. I I get a bit weirded out. <laughs> but if you had an office, uh... yeah. You know, when, in a few years you've got an office yeah. right and you've got in there a plant pot when I'm Louis CK big I'll, I'll get I'll get okay. some sweet ass like uh, chronological journey of all my posters I think it's a nice thing yeah they always seem like uh, Larry David has, an, has I mean it's just a thing that people have in it in their office but there is something I like the idea of one day having a wall filled with uh, old posters of shows or you know Film, yeah. films hopefully and stuff like that to look back on and go oh that's cool I can see what I've done with my life there, mm. to a degree yeah yeah I guess it, it would be quite nice you could look at the wall and go um, okay so it is possible I can do stuff yeah but equally if one of those things is a massive hit <laughs> it becomes a weight it's like a millstone around your neck every time you come in you're just like oh no I'm not going to make anything better than that Oh. I don't know. I guess you just got a Woody Allen it. You just fucking just make it out. Get it out there. So, Ben Target, what's next for you now? I am doing a really interesting project called the Care Home Tour with a friend of mine, Pope Lonergan, who is a professional care worker for residents in care home who have dementia. Oh. And he has done a lot of research and discovered that the limbic response that um, people with dementia have is very strong with music and he wants to discover if it can be replicated with physical comedy. So setup punchline is hard to focus on if you're living with dementia, but slapstick, yeah. visual stuff still makes people laugh. And there is a deficit in Britain, I think, in the care culture uh, there are a lot of great carers, but there's not enough. And there's also a strange culture. When you get old, you get infantilized and sort of just um, push, pushed out to pasture. Yeah. <laughs> and left in care homes. And I used to work in care homes when I was a teenager and was really very shocked by how little entertainment there was, how little interaction between young and old folk there was. Um, families often lived miles from care homes, didn't necessarily... Um, have the the time to take off work or wouldn't take the time off work to live with these older generations and I feel like we have to address that and change our internal structures in our families and maybe um, live in the way that some cultures in the Far East live 
uh, and make care of all generations within the family integral to the in daily life. To get back to the point, that's mm. the backstory. Yeah. Pope and I are getting a troupe of comedians together who specialize in physical comedy and we're going to do a show at a care home in Essex. We've got a lot of love and a lot of support from the comedy That's community. David Badil's behind us, Sarah Pascoe, Josie Long, Liam Williams, some really great comedians. And then uh, Phil Nickel and Adam Riches, who are both previous Edinburgh Comedy Award winners and incredible live acts, are going to come with us. We're going to get a team of six and that's going to be on the 9th of October before that on the 2nd of October we've got a fundraiser which is going to help us get there pay for our fuel and it's some of the cash is also going to the Alzheimer's sock and that's an incredible bill that's like Richard Gadd Lou Sanders Candy Gigi so many good people Robin Ince is coming down so that's the big project for October then the other big project for the winter is uh, Tony Law on Ice. Tony Law is a great Canadian comic mm. I've been a big fan of for a long time. He got in touch with me about a year ago saying, I want to do a show on ice. You seem like the kind of guy who's, <laughs> who's mad enough to do it. And I said, I am the kind of guy, I want to be part of this, but I'm not the, the I don't have the producer chops. So I handed the project over to uh, a close collaborator of mine, Adam Lata, who runs a great collective called Weirdos Comedy, who put on the boldest and uh, wildest shows in London. And he's booked Alexander Palace Ice Rink, no. got together a cast of 10, written a script called Icetopia, and we are rehearsing it at the moment <laughs> and learning how to skate. And we're going to do that on the 14th of October. So... Those are the big two projects in the gun. That's and then you mad. Can, yeah, I mean, people can catch me on tour in the new year with Orange Aid, and I'm making a new show. So it's all go at the moment. It's all go, no, go, no, go. It's, it's great to hear. Um, and You can get back on the bike. We've both done it. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's possible. Because I, I remember the lo- when we worked together and we were chatting, and we were both, I think, quite low in... in Spirits, in yeah. Spirits. We both felt a little bit broken by our experiences in the industry. You touched upon it earlier. Mm. Getting disappointment, getting disappointed, I think, is part of the journey. Yes. And learning how to deal with that is. Also but it, it was very nice to chat to you about it at the time, um, and you helped with stuff. And I hope that you know things are looking up a bit more at the moment, and it should be a good year. Yeah. But I wish you all the best with October and with the charity work and stuff. And, and thank you so much for, for coming down to chat. Yeah, I wish you best of luck with the pilot. It's been a delight to chat. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. That was Ben Target. Um, Sorry, going to stop doing that radio voice now. That was Ben Target. I think a very interesting bloke. I hope you agree. I really enjoyed talking to him. If you at Ben Target, spelt Ben Target... He, he, you can get him on Insta with that and Twitter. You should also add Weirdos Comedy Club on Facebook. You can check out all the stuff that he was talking about there. That'll be coming up soon. And also Next Up Comedy, the thing we were talking about earlier, which is like kind of like uh, Netflix, but for up-and-coming comedians as well as established ones. That's very cheap, and there's loads of content on there. Uh, they're not even sponsoring me. You know, I just believe in it. Uh, if you're interested in me, which is doubtful... But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do it anyway. You can get me on at Matt Skillington. I'll be on Twitter and I need the followers. I'm, I'm very low on followers. So if you could follow me, then that'd be good because I know that you can't, you know, you're not a somebody if you don't have a certain amount of followers. You are, you're, you're a nobody. So that'd be good if I could get out of that, uh, that dark hole. Uh, also, uh, the comedy club that I'm in, uh, comedy club? The comedy group I'm in, Seldom Differ. If you want to kind of check out all them videos or keep up to date what we're doing, uh, you can get us on Facebook. Just type in Seldom Differ Comedy and add follow or, you know, whatever it is. Become a fan. Just just do it. Do it all. Uh, you can also get us at Seldom Differ on Twitter, believe it or not. And yeah, www.seldomdiffer.co.uk. That's where you can see it all. See all our videos. Um, 
and just try and binge watch it and try and enjoy it. I hope you do. I can't promise it because you might not, but I really, really hope you do. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you to my producer Ryan Owes for helping me make this podcast and we should be making more hopefully. If you like this one, share it, do all that jazz. Uh, yeah, and that's it. I'll leave you with these final words. Skilleve in yourself, but more importantly, skilleve in a better world. Skilleve it or not, I've just talked on air and I've probably drunk my tea. I've chatted the breeze in my hope that you cared. Who could it have been? Skilleve it or not, it was just me. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Good night! <laughs>